Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. Welcome, everybody. My name is Dr. Allison Moorhead, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Art History and Art Conservation at Queen's. I would like to immediately introduce Sandra Morden, acting associate university librarian, who will welcome you on behalf of the library. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sandra Morden, Acting Associate University Librarian at Queen's University Library. On behalf of the library, I would like to welcome you to this Fireplace Series conversation. In other times, we would enjoy being together in the space and the warmth of the fireplaces in the Allen G. Green Fireplace Reading Room in Stauffer Library. In imagining ourselves together in that space and acknowledging that we are joining from various locations today, to begin, let us acknowledge that our usual meeting place and Queen's University are situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. By acknowledging this traditional territory, we recognize its longer history, one predating the establishment of the earliest European colonies. We acknowledge its significance for the Indigenous peoples who lived and continue to live upon it. We're grateful to live, learn, and play on these lands. I think we've gained even more appreciation during recent times. We're grateful also to connect with each other in meaningful ways such as this conversation today. Thanks for joining us today and welcome. Thank you so much, Sandra. And I am joining you all today from Takaranto, otherwise known as Toronto, the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And today, the home of diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. This land is subject to Treaty 13, long contested by the Mississaugas of the Credit and only settled with the Crown in 2010. Before Treaty 13, these richly resourced lands were subject to many agreements, including the Dish With One Spoon Treaty, a commitment among diverse peoples to share and take care of the land and all that the land offers. And this includes the hydropower of Niagara Falls, which is near where my own family settled in the early 20th century. And it enables me to zoom in to you today. And I take this opportunity to express my gratitude to be able to live and work here, to recognize myself as a treaty person, and to publicly recommit to the Dish With One Spoon Treaty, to care for and to share the resources of this land in peace. On behalf of myself, Dean Barbara Crow and Dr. Laura Cameron, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, who co-directs with me the Fireplace series, I'd like to offer warm thanks to our sponsors, the library, as well as the Faculty of Arts and Science. 
to the faculty office and library staff who have worked very hard to put this conversation together, and a special thanks to the series coordinator, Claudia Hertenfelder, a PhD student in geography, whose work behind the scenes, and she is very much behind the scenes today, is extraordinary and invaluable. The Fireplace series was inaugurated just over three years ago by Dean Barbara Crow and Martha Whitehead, and it continues under the Dean's ongoing support and that of Interim Vice Provost and University Librarian, Michael Vandenberg. The series is intended as a set of interdisciplinary conversations on topics of broad interest and concern. We invite two scholars from different disciplinary backgrounds or fields to chat informally on a topic while seeking common and uncommon ground. If you have an idea for a future fireplace chat, please feel free to reach out to Laura and myself. We are especially keen to showcase visiting scholars and new faculty members at Queen's. Today's speakers have agreed on some broad parameters for their conversation, and I will get them going with a question or maybe two. After about 45 minutes, I will invite audience members to join in with your own questions. And this will be done using the chat function. The, your questions will go only to the hosts, and then they will be collated and I will put them to our speakers today. The Fireplace series is also a podcast, so we are recording today thanks to the efforts of Matt Rogalski. Today's conversation is entitled, Timely Teaching for a Globalizing Present and Decolonial Futures. And it asks, how do we teach now? Now for this globalizing present and towards something that we hope are decolonial futures. Dr. Beverly Mullings and Dr. Thashika Pillay, both scholars concerned with diasporic and global identities, will embark on a conversation about teaching in, from, and to the current moment. Dr. Beverly Mullings is a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's whose work is located within the field of feminist political economy and engages questions of labor, social transformation, neoliberalism, and the politics of gender, race, and class in the Caribbean and its diaspora. She is interested in the ways that evolving racial capitalist regimes are recasting and transforming work, divisions of labor, patterns of urban governance, and ultimately responses to social and economic injustice. Beverly is currently engaged in three major research projects. One examines the financialization of Caribbean remittance economies. The second explores the possibilities that diasporic dialogue holds for reviving Caribbean radical traditions. The third project traces the impact of the Black middle class on social transformation in post-plantation economies. Dr. Thashika Pillay is Assistant Professor in Educational Policy in the Faculty of Education at Queen's. 
Tashika has extensive research and teaching experience in K-12 and higher education in Canada, Australia, and Ethiopia. Her research program explores questions of social, cultural, economic, political, and epistemic justice, and the possibilities for anti-colonial educational policy in formal and informal contexts. Her current research explores the gaps exposed by the COVID-19 pandemic as related to racialized students' educational experiences and the role of social media in educating youth around issues of justice and equity. In addition, Tashika is co-editor of Decolonizing Global Citizenship Education, a publication from 2015, and Global Citizenship, Commonwealth, and Uncommon Citizenships from 2018. Welcome, Beverly and Tashika, and welcome to all of you listening today. To start off this conversation about teaching in, from, and to the current moment, I'd like to ask Beverly and Tashika to describe from their perspectives as researchers and educators, and in Tashika's case, as an educator for educators, what is this moment? Thank you. Um, Tashika, do you want to go first? No, please go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So this moment, this moment really, emerged in a way that I don't think we could possibly have um, anticipated by about March. Our lives were upside down by June, even more upside down. And I think the three things about this moment that continues to shape, I think, how we we think about things, but also how we teach about things. And that's our ongoing pandemic and what that means as we talk to each other through computer screens. The other would be the global protests around systemic and anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racisms, and increasingly anti-Asian racisms. And the third would be the ongoing, in the background, looking at us moment of climate change. And I think if there is something about this moment, it is forcing us to pause to listen, to rethink, and to try to rebuild. There's a lot of repair, and I think this moment has made it pretty clear that in our teaching, we need to be reparative. We need to be reparatory, I guess that's a word, but a way in which we think about harms that have been done in the past and the obligation of repair for the future. Tashika? Yeah, it's been... um... I mean, I'm sure for all of us, such an intense year, um, and it's been almost exact, just over a year now that we've all kind of been thrown into this um, new way of living um, that in so many ways goes against um, our very natures of being, um, of knowing, of, you know, being together. And I wonder in part if it's, if it's forced us as well to really reconsider what it is that we hold deep inside us. What is it that we value? Uh, really, what if is what what is it that we need to to take uh, forward now thereafter, and what is it that we can leave behind, you know, as well? What is it that was not working? Um, 
I have been amazed, um, you know, as I think about the last year of how so many things that we usually we are told takes time and suddenly we're, we, we are hearing about them um, happening in, in very little time, right? Um, within a week, we're in March of 2020, we are suddenly all become online teachers <laughs> and everything shifts, right? Um, and, and so resources are poured in to do you know, certain things. Governments suddenly decide that they have money in order to make sure that people can, um, you know, can take care of themselves in some ways that we can support small businesses, um, that we can uh, worry about healthcare, you know. Um, so we're told that all of these things that aren't possible, um, but actually are possible. And it's about actually rethinking what our prior prior priorities are. And I think, um, Bev, your point about, you know, what, how do we rethink? How do we reimagine? Uh, what do we rebuild going forward? I think that's such an important point in, you know, in all ways of thinking, whether it's talking about the, you know, racial injustice and, and thinking about what that has, how that has really come to the fore, thinking about um, climate change and, and what that has meant. Um, you know, I've seen very little actually in the last little while, early on in the pandemic, um, we heard a lot about um, the effects of less traveling may have been having, but I've actually seen very little lately. So actually, this has made me curious again now as to, you know, what does that mean? Um, I think I just have even more questions now about what, it, about what going forward means differently. Yeah. And it certainly makes me think the point you just raised, you know, you're right that, that there are a number of things that exploded in the summer, but climate change is is curiously a little quieter than the other pressing needs. And it, it raises for me the, the real worry and concern that we need to hold all of those things in tension because if we're not careful, they can easily slip away. My sense in the classroom is that students are still, they're exhausted, but they're still very hungry for, for some sense of A, listening to what they think but be some guidance on where to think and how to think. So in this moment, I think what it's allowing us to do is maybe to pick up a few, few good ideas that were out there all along, but sort of on the table because we didn't have the resources, didn't think we could do it, no one thought it was important, and to really take those back up again, to be able to move with them. And those good ideas on the table were always about social justice, but always felt a little bit sort of not just yet or not or in the making and i really believe this is the moment to remember what those are and to run with them so on issues for example of climate change not to let it fall off the you know conversations that we're having but i am i'm very taken with students at the moment they are hungry for information they're finding it some of it themselves one of the interesting things i am finding when i speak to students is some of them want to feel that they're having the conversation of the moment in the classroom on a daily basis. And it means it's a challenge for us as educators to think about, regardless of what our disciplines are, to be bringing those questions that are partly, you know, the newsfeed, what's on social media into our classrooms to make sense of it. I don't know if you're feeling the same thing among the students that you meet, Tashika. No, I, I think that's a very important point, Bev. I think um, I'm thinking to the scholar strike, for example, um, in September, and um, 
and I, I wasn't actually sure about how the students would, would, you know, engage with it and what the take up would be, but across the board, um, they were still very engaged and so very grateful that there was a space to have these conversations and where they could also be facilitated by in, in a way where they were continuing to learn. Um, and I think you're right. I think there is a there is a true appetite there to actually have these conversations, to be able to think through them um, and to take the time to do that. I think that's also something that we don't you know, I, as an educator, I see so often this, this especially now with, with the horrendous incident that happened in Atlanta um, with um, eight women who were, who were murdered, um, the majority of whom were of Asian descent. Um, and, I, and I think I've been seeing a lot of um, requests, for example, for, you know, anti-racism lesson plans or how do we talk about this, right? And, and I appreciate that there is, um, a growing appetite to talk about this and to recognize that we need to bring it into our into our teaching, into our classroom, into all of the spaces in which we exist, right? Including into workspaces and so on. It cannot just be in, in formal education spaces. But I think also, what does it mean? How, how does this become sustained work? I think is the question of the moment. Um, because it's not being sustained when it's one-offs. It's not being sustained when we only ask for it when a travesty happens. Um, and and I think that is that is my concern: is how do we put how do we put in the resources? How do we? we I mean, this is it's so capitalistic to think of it this way, but it is about resources at the end of the day, right? In order to make this make this work long-lasting. Um, yeah, I. And to remember that it is work and that it is work that traditionally has been unpaid and unrecognized by a number largely of racialized, but not only faculty who, who've been doing that work. And so, you know, in the moment where we turn to resources, partly, you know, I think that there needs to be an emphasis on it's all our responsibilities and for for those of us who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, because maybe your discipline, you know, doesn't push you in that direction, that it is still a moment if one is committed to questions of social justice and social change and, and building better communities to become informed. And it's a hard thing, I know. It's not a simple thing when your discipline has never considered questions of, you know, coloniality or of systemic racism, because that's just not what your discipline's canon says, you know, is an important thing, or it may not be your particular bent. But but it is the moment for if we are part of a community that we take that seriously and it means there's a lot of learning for all of us to do and some of that work is being done not just by faculty but students and I am beginning to see students who are tired because it's it's work that's an invisible not recognized and I know there are moments when I speak with colleagues and I realize well some people have a lot more time in this pandemic than <laughs> others. And I'm like, whoa, how come, you know, I don't have that time? And, you know, I realize it's that, yeah, in the moment, people are searching for answers or for direction. And it means that this, the same bodies get asked a lot. And going forward, that needs to change. Yeah, I think it's very true. It's, it's labor-intensive work that is often unrecognized, but also deeply traumatizing because um, you know, Black, Indigenous, and um, other racialized peoples end up, and other marginalized um, groups as well, end up spending a lot of time in 
unpaid labor, uh, continuously doing this work and doing it in a way where we often end up reliving, you know, our own experiences, our own lived experiences over and over again. Um, and there's not a lot of supports in place, um, you know, as we continue to do this work. And I, that's, I think that's a big concern. Um, for for whoever is doing this work, whether they're students or if they're faculty or if they're, you know, community activists and so on. I um I've been so amazed. I we're doing a, this little project with a high school in Toronto, George Vanier High School, and um these uh grade 12 students are talking about decolonizing curriculum. And so they're they're actually really excited and and they've been very um adamant that actually, you know, we feel it's really easy to decolonize like English and history if we really wanted to, like if like that could be done quite easily. But they're like, how do we decolonize math? How do we decolonize our science? Like, what does that look like? And I think you're right. There's these exciting conversations that are emerging and happening and they are being led by by young people in, in reality. Right. And and um, so often we don't listen to them. I think there is this assumption that, you know, we know better, right? It's the same thing. Oh, you don't have enough experience to be, you know, in formal politics uh, because you're too young as, as though, you know, you can't have ideas of what a world should look like. For example, if you're 20 years old <laughs> or 18 years old, right? And so I, I think you're right. I think there is this, there is this moment and we need to really start to rethink, um, you know, what it, who, what are the ideas that we value going forward and and maybe not looking so much at who it is that's bringing those ideas forward in terms of um ageism potentially but also looking at identity and and for a long time the identities of the people at the forefront of the ideas that are taken up have not been um groups that have been historically marginalized so and that then is such a challenge for us i think in this moment because it is it is about holding, you know, a balance between reaching out and inviting people who've traditionally not been at the table, being attentive to whose voice we're hearing in the room, and at the same time not burning people out. And so it's a tremendous tension. I, I know certainly for myself, you know, so happy that the moment has come where maybe maybe my you know, um, opinion might be sought more than it would have been at any other time, but also recognizing how tiring it is as as well. So, so there's something about balance that's needed, but certainly in terms of um, our university community, I see so importantly the need to to begin to reach out because I think there's there are many on our campus says students who or, or faculty or staff who've just never really been asked, didn't think they could actually have an opinion. And I'm, I'm thinking here specifically of international students that I think are such a resource in our institutions, but historically, at least in the time I've been, you know, at Queen's have been a very shadowy, quiet group. You know, I have a lecture where I always, I talk about the neoliberalization of the um, academy. <laughs> and then I do ask students in the classroom, you know, how much do you pay for your student fees? And I'm always amazed that our domestic students don't know. So I know they're not paying their own fees, probably. They don't <laughs> know why they don't know. But, but international students, when they say how much they pay, you know, there's a silence that, that descends on the classroom. And it's a moment to say, 
well, if you're paying that much, you actually deserve a voice at the table. And so I think, you know, what, what emerges in a moment like that is a recognition that, you know, we want to hear your voice, that you do have value. And I think there's some exciting things happening at our university at the moment in terms of, you know, recognizing and reaching out to our international students. But I think if we are to think about this sort of globalizing presence, they're a real key and an asset in that process. And just having a conversation where their realities, their travels, their border crossings become important sites for us to learn more about how we manage the moment. No, I think that's I think that's very true. And I and I think in some ways as well, we we have to think about it as a reciprocal responsibility that we have beyond just, you know, students within this colonial makeup of what is currently Canada. <laughs> Do we not have a, you know, a responsibility to students in other parts of the world um, who want to study here to allow them to have the most engaging experience um, possible? Um both for, of course, their own education, but also for what it brings us. Um, because we also get so much out of that, that learning and that, those educative moments, right? It opens up whole new spaces in terms of knowledge building, but also in terms of relationships, like the possibilities of relationship building, the possibilities of learning that happen in terms of, um, you know, I, I think through as someone who is who is not from this land. Um, I I was born in South Africa to indentured, uh, you know, families descendants of indentured laborers who were originally from South India, um, and then ended up in Treaty Six territory in Edmonton. It's you know, and then in Kataraki, you know, and that that process of um, the privilege of being able to have those experiences. But I would hope that those experiences and those and, and the learning that comes from having those diverse experiences means that I bring something myself to the space, um, right? And so I would think then that that would be the same for all of our students who who can who can be here um, and the possibilities of what that means, not just for the space here, but what it might also mean for their spaces at home. Um, if we truly value the knowledge that they have, A, how do we allow them to, you know, enhance it here? Um, and there's a whole question about what that means, um, because who are they learning from here is also a question, right? Are we only allowing them to learn certain types of knowledges here? And are we expecting them to take back a very colonial understanding of the world and expecting that colonial understanding of the world to then uh, be per pervasive in the global south country. So are we using education in the global north as a colonial, uh, a tool of colonization? And I, I worry about that too, but how we, um, how we manage, you know, um, these two ways of thinking or these ways of thinking, um, how we expand our understandings. Um, and I, I guess that's that 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 is something I, I do concern myself with in terms of trying to even in my own teaching, you know, trying to really think through um, how is it that it allows me to to expand upon the types of knowledges that are being presented in my classroom, so that I can center those knowledges from other spaces. And that's been a, a real, I would say, exactly you know, real challenge that that I've had, you know, because. Well, yeah, a bit like you, I, I'm not, I, you know, I wasn't born in Canada. In actual fact, I'm, I'm far more diasporic. I was born in, in London, 
but to Caribbean immigrants in the 1950s at my, you know, in a sense, doubly diasporic because, of course, part of an African diaspora that, you know, I know very little of in terms of direct connections. And that in the context of the Caribbean, being the offspring or the descendant of people who were enslaved, but people who were also enslavers. And that's, you know, a whole series of things that make up, you know, my own identity and and having to reckon with you know, coming to Canada and being so oblivious of an Indigenous presence until, to be honest, maybe the period, if I were to be honest, of of sort of the protests of idol, no more taking the time to actually know whose lands I occupy, um, being able, which is my new, you know, COVID, post-COVID challenge, to be able to actually even pronounce the names of the nation. Right now, I, I come courtesy of being on the traditional and unceded territory of, territories of the Ganungahagan people, Mohawk, in um, Jajage, Montreal, just learning to say those words, taking the time. I have an exercise in my class where I ask students whose territory are you on as we introduce ourselves? And I, I'm still surprised how difficult it is for students, despite all of our land acknowledgements at Queen's, it's not an easy exercise, but the exercise is necessary because it makes one aware of the act of acknowledgement being an act or a willingness to enter a process of reconciliation in how broad a meaning that can be. And, you know, for for my own work, you know, I came to my discipline only learning the geographical canon that was European and white. And, And to be honest, that was much of my education. So it's been an education in trying to decenter the canon to you know, engage in different citational practices to read works that nobody else would read and and that people aren't reading even now that are necessary. So, you know, the classroom for me is the space, but the academy is also the space to sort of think about how do we decenter what we know are the canons we kind of inherited as as professors and to be able to open up space for people to bring, you know, their own issues, questions, knowledges to be part of the conversation. And, and that's an exciting time. You know, I just spent yesterday with my my TAs. I have two TAs who are international students and they are just the most brilliant people. But we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what does, what does decolonization mean um, in the context of the Caribbean? And some of those un, unfinished conversations about European colonialism that's very much still present in the region, but also the internal plantation in the Caribbean that needs to be another conversation about, you know, Creole nationalism. And, and it was a most exciting conversation, which which has led me, courtesy of one of my students, to, you know, be introduced to people like the, the um, reggaeton singer Bad Bunny, which, you know, courtesy of one of my students, I, I am now learning more. But, you know, it's a process of, of learning for all and a recognition that, you know, this is the space where the resources are that we can share them widely and that they can be you know revolutionary in so far as they change significantly 
how we think about place, space, and time. No, I think I think that's that's so important, right? Um, like I'm thinking of your uh, comment about citation practices, for example, and and us trying to rethink, you know, who it is that we whose work is it that we're engaging with? What is the work that we're engaging with? I'm was having a conversation with a grad student a few weeks ago about um, and asking why is it that you can't actually engage with literature, um, you know, from from the from the spaces in which you're you're writing. Why is it that you why don't you engage with oral stories from the spaces in which you're writing? Let's rethink. Um, let's rethink what should be considered part of a theoretical framework or a literature review. Um, and, and it's okay for us to do, but it, it feels in some ways that um, those conversations are still really um, at their, you know, at foundational in some ways. They haven't been entrenched into academia. Um, and so we're, we're, we're kind of constructing it as we, as we go along. And it's exciting in so many ways. But I also know for a lot of, in particular for, for students, it's scary. It's scary to feel that you are going against the grain. It's scary to feel that you have to constantly um, prove why, you know, you should be allowed to do this. Um, explain your reasons, worried about what that external uh, examiner might ask you, you know, ab about this. And so, and I, and I understand that, that, you know, that, um, I guess the the fear of of what that could look like, because the institution itself, um, you know, the structures and and the systems of the institution um, move very slowly, <laughs> as we know. Um, so many of the things that we that we can see happening in the institution now, we like if we're thinking of, you know, they they were called for decades ago. <laughs> And so, and it makes me wonder how long it will take for the things that we're calling for now <laughs> to, to happen. Um, but I guess in some ways we live in perpetual hope that change is possible, but also um, in a time where we can do this really intense theorizing and thinking through um, of what is, of, you know, what is possible. And, and I mean, I do have a lot of, I feel very privileged in a lot of ways to be able to do that. Um, I was thinking about your comment about Idle No More and thinking about how so much of our learning um, has come from organizing work that has been done, right? Um, and I think that that, that for me, um, like thinking through the def defund poli the police um, in Canada before you know May and the protests that erupted over the summer, um, something like less than 20% or something of Canadians were um, in favor of defunding the police. But then once the protests took off, and then um, I remember reading, I think it was, I get so much information from Twitter. I don't know how I existed before it. Um, but uh, tweets by uh, San Sandy Hudson, who was one of the founders of the BLM movement in Toronto, talking about um, coming up with a strategy with her cousin. So again, that relational building about how could they get that conversation around defunding the police really going in Canada. And so creating the strategy and this um, kind of this media intervention. And by the end of the summer, I think we were at something like the vast uh, majority of Canadians now are actually actively contemplating the positives of defunding the police, um, and and this to me is is just amazing. Like the that that is not that is not the work that is happening in our formal classroom spaces. That is the work that's happening 
in the grassroots, in our community spaces, in our activist spaces. Um, and that, in some ways, you know, as an educator, and especially as someone who does some work in community, that's, I feel like that's where the exciting work is. And almost like as educators, I, as an educator, I, I'm, I, I, I learn from what is happening there. And I try to bring that into my classroom. Um, and I, I, and I, I guess I, I wonder, I, I wonder if that, if, if it's, is it possible that that we can somehow support that work better as educators? And how do we do that? How do we support that work? Yeah, and it, you know, it's it's such a challenge because I have spoken to students who have felt that you know what happens in communities that they know well and that they're a part of is somehow very different and cannot fully enter you know the place of scholarship that the two go together. I've also had people feel. I'm not that sort of person. I don't have, you know, because I think there is a, there is an assumption that the person who works in community is somehow a, you know, Angela Davis type. And, and, and the, the realization that community is what, what strengthens you, which holds you together, particularly if you feel marginal to things that when you listen to um, politically active activists in the 1950s, 60s, they never called themselves activists. They just said, I was part of the community. And so, you know, to me, community is such an important thing. And community includes the community of the university campus and what's outside of it. So, you know, a little bit of me says, wow, this is a moment for saying to to students, you know, community is is about the people you care about and you feel obligated to enough to want to play a role and and the role that you play is not necessarily a leadership one it's simply just being there learning supporting being accountable and and with that comes all sorts of things you know Tashik I listen to you and I go I think I'm a little older than you because I am not as much on Twitter actually I'm not on <laughs> I'm not on, on social, social media but I do recognize that there's a tremendous power that is happening in terms of communication across boundaries and borders that, you know, it's just brilliant. And I think, you know, tapping into what young people are doing in terms of using social media, knowing how to strategize. Some of our best strategy makers are actually um, young people. I've had a a conversation not that long ago with some um, students, well, they're no longer students. They were Queen's alum, but they're putting together an app. And I was like, wow, an app so that they can reconnect with other Black students who were at Queen's and to sort of build a community that way. So, you know, this is a moment for all our possibilities to happen. I want to take up one thing you said, and and that was about, um, you know, being able to think nimbly and flexibly about how to do research, research with community, research that might be creative, artistic, innovative, and what we're stuck with, which are rules and regulations that can sometimes be really, really archaic and and not as able to move with the times. And I, you know, I think it's a real challenge because I, I agree with you. I'm so wanting us to not just, not just unsettle the canon, but to really ask questions about what constitutes knowledge and what does it look like? And is it, is it the dissertation or is it, you know, 
something that's a creative practice or a cultural practice or a really different way of of producing knowledge. It's not that simple. And I am finding one of the challenges is as a professor of color, there's always the the worry in the back of my head that, you know, encouraging someone to do that, it's going to end up with someone going, well, you know, she wasn't really very good to begin with. And look, she has them, you know. <laughs> so there's a worry, that it's, there's a struggle in there to bring issues for change without having a narrative of what excellence looks like thrown back at you and for you to come up short. And, you know, in a sense, I am a senior faculty member. So I, I feel in, maybe for the first time, <laughs> I can just throw caution to the wind. But I do remember how disciplining that was as a junior scholar. And so it's, I think the moment also asks us to support nimbleness, change, ways of doing things that perhaps once upon a time would be seen as not possible or suspect, <laughs> you know, you know and, and the suspect part is always a, not really about academic work, not really serious. To think of how do we engage those different ways of knowing, doing, thinking, and and to be able to recognize that these are valid forms of knowledge production as well. So these are some of the challenges. I don't know if you've, you you come across that in the work you're doing or. No, I, I, you know, I hardly agree. I mean, I think in particular, just thinking through, um, you know, these amazing Indigenous scholars that I know that are doing some of the most, you know, and I don't even know, uh, some of the work that I, that I feel is at the forefront around what actually is knowledge and how do we understand, you know, uh, knowledge and 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 um the push for example to be allowed to do oral dissertations and oral theses um which i don't actually and we'll call out queens for a minute but i don't actually think queens act still um allows um oral theses or dissertations maybe with um exceptions that have you know where you have to apply for um for permission to be able to do it <laughs> um and so and so I, I want that. So I agree. I think this this idea of what knowledge we value is is within a very colonial context of of what is knowledge and, and in what ways, you know, um, can can that knowledge be presented um, and awarded a, de a, a degree um, and what, as you said, what is excellence, right? Um, I mean, even this, even seeing all these job ads, right, that call about talk about black excellence. Uh, and I'm like an assistant professor with black excellence. And I'm like, no, this is like, we would not ask this of other, uh, of, you know, in some ways of, in other jobs. Um, and so I, I think about the expectations that we place on, on, you know, black indigenous and, and other racialized uh, scholars, um, you know, whether junior or, or senior scholars uh, on our students um, and the ways in which they, they manage to always rise to, to meeting those expectations, but the toll that it takes on, that it takes on them. Um, I think it's, it's, it's so, um, I mean, of course, it's it's concerning because I because the the institution gets a lot of cachet, <laughs> you know, by having a number of uh, of racialized academics working for it, by having a number of racialized students. We're always we're constantly trying to recruit more, right? Um, but what? How do we support them? 
um, I think is the question. How do we support this work that they want to do? How do we support, you know, both financially, but in other ways? Um, how do we how do we put in place the structures so that they can do this work without having to constantly jump through hoops? Yeah. And, you know, to, to be able to do the work they want to do and then to also recognize that, you know, for so many students that I'm thinking about, that, that the struggle of that work can take a toll. And it may mean that that the speed with which you do that work, you know, the way in which you you hit the benchmarks <laughs> that are expected of you, time to completion, all the rest of it, can be, you know, put in a place where it may take longer, it may look different, it may be that it's, you know, there's a whole academic life cycle that you you can start off really fast and then there's something, life gets in the way, it slows down. But But to be able to be flexible in the moment, I think is such an important part of thinking about decolonial futures because it recognizes that we all don't come to the table the same way. We don't come with the same things, that there are moments in our lives where we have to take a, a step back. And then there are moments where we plow through. And, you know, I'm having another conversation with one of my students uh, about, you know, ableism in the, in the academy. Uh, what we expect some people to do, that we have a sort of normative type of person in the academy who comes in and hits all of our buttons in terms of how they proceed, what they achieve. They manage to get all the awards and we say that's, you know, not everyone comes to the academy that way. How do we make an academy that is nimble enough, open enough, you know, makes it possible for, for very differently abled peoples to be in the space and to be recognized as having something to bring to the space. So, you know, there's some work I've been doing over the years with um, a number of scholars at other universities, uh, Linda Peak, Dr. Linda Peak being one, and Dr. Kate Parizo on questions around mental health. And, and it's important. And I do know in this particular COVID moment, I don't think we've paid enough attention to just the differently abled peoples at a moment of intense stress. So, you know, this is part of the mix of what timely teaching looks like. It may be sometimes making more time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such an important point. Um, and, and, you know, both in academia, but also um, I'm thinking of the K-12 school system, right? There's this discourse around learning loss because, you know, students are not learning in the same ways in, in schools. And yes, I mean, it's true. There, there is a loss of learning, but what does it matter <laughs> really, right? It is possible to relearn um, and it's actually easier to relearn um, than, than we give ourselves credit for. Um, it's just about realigning priorities and not being as stringent according to what is actually we consider to be um, you know, the curriculum for grade four or the curriculum for grade five, which is all arbitrary anyway, right? Um, there is no reason you have to learn long division in grade three or wherever you learn it, like none at all. Um, and so what is it that we actually do need to, to learn? You know, what is it that students need to take away when they're, if they're in school? And we can talk about the purpose of schooling too, because that would be a whole other hour. <laughs> <laughs> right? The hidden curriculum of schooling. <laughs> and so, but 
but if, if, you know, if we keep schools in, in some shape and form, should we rethink their purpose? Are there, should they just be about creating people for this capitalist economy, which seems to be the purpose of them right now, um, and not really about, you know, living together and, and in relationship with each other, not about finding solidarity, not about working to any sense of justice, really. Um, that only comes through if there are individuals within the system who are willing to, you know, fight for that work. Um, I mean, that's this is the same in academia, I find, right? We can talk about academia being about the public good, for example. Um, but sometimes I wonder um, how often we actually keep to that, um, you know? I'd like to think that we keep it at the cornerstone of our, you know, at the forefront of our minds all the time, but, but I'm jaded <laughs> that that is actually what is happening. It's, unfortunately, I'm going to come in here for a moment, but just really to open up the conversation to the people who have been listening so intently to you share um, your thoughts with each other and with us. Um, I want, I just want to also highlight something that Bev said that moved me deeply, which was this, this, the idea that it is a moment for all our possibilities um, is a, a, a quote I will take from something you just said and keep with me. The first question. So if you have a question, please do put it in the chat function. It will go to Claudia, who will then feed it to me. The reason everybody who's out there that we're doing it this way is because it is a podcast. So we're recording this with good quality sound so that more people can share in this conversation um, beyond this moment of time we have together on a Friday. My first question, the first question that I'm going to pose to you, Tashika and Beverly, is from Jordan Morelli. Thanks for this discussion, Jordan writes. I agree completely that service work is work, especially the work of being challenged by others due to your race slash gender. It is draining and largely unrecognized not only by our employers, but by all those who have never had to face this themselves. My question is, what are the top three changes or supports that you would recommend to help relieve the burden and bring lasting change? Tashika, you want to go first or should I? I can, okay. I can put one or two in and you can put one or two in. <laughs> go ahead. Thank you so much for that question, because it is something, you know, that's always sort of in my mind. I don't know if I have all the answers, but I do know one or two things that I think we need to be able to see the hiddenness or the hidden nature of that kind of work. It's just so absent and we don't have metrics that really make it possible to see it. And in actual fact, sometimes we discipline ourselves to not even realize that that is actually work. So, so my sense is work becomes recognized for its value when it is compensated. And that, you know, that was the reason behind wages for housework back in the 1970s, that, that somehow uh, we recognize it by the value that is being um, provided when it is compensated. And compensation, in my mind, is not necessarily about money, but it is a recognition that, you know, if I'm doing all of this hidden work and it's taking me that much longer 
that I'm not disciplined by some other metric that says, well, what did you produce last year? Or how quickly, how many articles did you get out last year? Or why is it that your, you know, um, submissions for your course that you you haven't submitted, you know, your your coursework? Because and this goes for students too, that that they are often in that work. So I think compensation, but also the education of recognizing the hidden nature of what really people might be doing, which they may not share with you because they they themselves don't necessarily know that that's what, you know, they don't necessarily call it work, especially if you're used to doing things for in a community. It's just what the community needs, but it is actually work and it takes time and it takes effort. Tashika? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's so important, right? That recognition that that work is actually happening in various ways. Um, and also, you know, with that recognition comes opening up spaces to actually have conversations where we are allowing ourselves to rethink what is it that is uh, putting us, causing the need to do this work in the first place? You know, what is it that are actually the barriers that are, that we are trying to overcome here um, because without having those active conversations about those, you know, those structures in place, how um, it, it ends up being um, work that's being done in some ways at an individual level, because there's larger, there's larger pieces at play here, right? Um, whatever that, you know, however that might look. Um, but we need to be able to have spaces where we can have those conversations and one of the things that always happens, I find, is when I'm, um, you know, when you're working with a group of, you know, like-minded people is that they can always talk about what needs to come, what resources need to come, what supports need to come in order for this to look different. Um, but the problem is, is that the people on the top who are making the decisions aren't always willing to listen. And so you need people who can listen. Um, and I think without the people who are willing to listen without it just simply being um, a situation where they pretend to listen, they, they you know, and then ignore you later on. <laughs> you know, how, how does that come to be? Um, how does that change come to be? Which is, I think we have to be so, so mindful then about that, that grassroots work, about um, being so very um, careful in some ways, and so very particular about who actually it is that are in positions of power, and even rethinking these hierarchies around who that fact that we have positions of power, um, right? That that's a really broad answer. But honestly, I'm I'm in the I'm in the boat of let's let's kind of not burn it all down, but you know, let's start let's start over again. Let's rethink these hierarchies. Let's rethink these structures. Um, because they 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 they've gotten us to a certain point, but is it really good enough? It's not. Can we not have parts of our service our evaluations that have a section called anti-racist service work, and we fill in a narrative? I mean, it is a, the norms of evaluation processes are really what you're getting at so so pointedly. Um, I want to ask other people's questions, though. <laughs> Patricia A.B. asks, oh, sorry, Bev, go ahead. That's such a good good comment that you made. I mean, there has been one suggestion, and I think it's a brilliant one, that if you teach a course that has 
any social justice, but particularly race or gender in it, that it actually is recognized. It's a signal and it, it it's not, I'm not asking for everyone to, you know, just stick the title in there then because it will do that. But, but that work that really in that course is doing the work of repairing, training, educating, that that be recognized and have particular weight and value in that sort of evaluation process. If you, if you work with any group like EDII, and in our department, we've had lots of great conversations this summer as we set up an EDIIA accountability added to the end um, committees that, that that count, you know, and often it's students who are really doing a lot of the work in there that that counts not just for faculty because we have formal, you know, merit, but but for students as well that we recognize this is extra work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point. I'll just say, I this is part of a conversation that is starting to happen at the faculty of ed. And I'm really excited that we're starting to think about what this could look like. So good to hear it. Patricia AB asks, this is a very thought provoking question. I think the initial question we posed that has, that has been posed. My questions to the panelists are, will this moment last? Will the measures that are currently being put in place have any meaningful impact? Is this a moment that will forever shape our actions as educators or is just or or this or is this just another moment in time that we will forget once we return to normalcy? That's the worry, isn't it? I mean, it's the fair. It's the thing when I go to bed at night and I feel excited in the day about something. It's the thing that keeps me worried that, you know, there are all sorts of ideas. There are all sorts of hopeful things that are being said and it could all just disappear with a change of administration, <laughs> you know, that it could all go away. I, I think specifically, you know, at the moment we're on the cusp of a black studies minor, it could just disappear, you know, it could, it could fall under the weight of neglect. And I hope that wouldn't happen, but I do think it has a lot to do with who's at the top. And if there is um, commitment at the top, and I feel that Queen's at, at, at this moment is entering something that looks very different from what I can remember in the past, then, then I'm hopeful. But, but wow, I don't know. Post-COVID means that there's a lot of economic issues that are going to raise their ugly heads again. And I don't know what that looks like when, when the economy takes over as a major concern, which is what it's been for the last at least 20 odd years that I know of, and everything else that goes to ground. So yeah, it's a million dollar question for me. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think this is a conversation we've been having about what does post-COVID look like and do we actually want to return to what was normal before? Um, and in, and I know that, you know, the media talks about this idea that by, you know, August, we might be able to do certain things again and travel again. And, you know, we might actually get to spend Christmases with our families wherever they are and so on. Um, but I, but I agree. I, I wonder what, how is it that we take all this learning that we've had in the past, you know, year and by that time, year and a half or so, or two years and push it towards rethinking what is normal. Um, what, and, you know, going back to what is it that became the things that we really 
um, clung to during the pandemic? What were the things that we that we felt we could not actually do without? You know, it was the ability to make sure that we were safe, that we were that we were loved, that we had you know um, mental and physical and emotional well being, um, that our families were cared for. Um, you know that that regular uh, people that we didn't have to worry. Um, you know that homelessness was was not a you know, homeless people were taken care of that, you know, that, you know, that marginalized peoples in our society, you know, were not bearing the for, um, the brunt of this pandemic. I mean, not all of us, obviously, but I think that, that that was what a lot of the conversations were like. So I would hope that going forward that we don't, that we continue to to place that at the forefront of, of the work that we all do. And I think when I say all, and, you know, not just those of us in academia, but also, you know, all of us as a, you know, as a, as a living community who have a responsibility to each other. Um, and I, and hopefully that is something that will come out of this, this idea that we are actually, we do need to engage ethically and relationally with each other. We have a, we have to have a commitment to one another. This is why we're not, um, you know, trying at least not to spend time with people who are not part of our cohorts because we don't want you know, people to become um, to become ill because we don't want to cause harm. Um, can we think of it beyond COVID about how we live our lives so we're not causing harm? This feeds exactly and in, precisely into the next question um, that's been posed by Laura Cameron. Um, both Beverly and Tashika seem to emphasize an ethic of care at the foundation of learning. Could they talk more about that? What does an ethic of care in the classroom look like in your own practices? I can start. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I think this is an important um, question. I, I think part of it, in terms of my own practice, is this understanding that um, well-being is has to be at the center of all that we all that we do. Learning in, of any type, shape or form cannot happen um, without, you know, emotional, mental and, and physical well-being, psychological well-being. Um, I, I often get, you know, emails from students asking for, you know, deferrals or telling me they're going to miss a class. But then they always, most all of them add a little part there, like, uh, you know, offering to to send me a doctor's note or, or, you know, some other thing. And I, I want to say, you do not have to share your trauma with me in order for me, to, like whatever the reason is, even if it's just because you, for some reason, need a day for of well-being, that should be enough. Right. Um, and so I, I wonder how, like, how, how do we make that be the norm? Um, I, I think I teach a great course, but <laughs> like, but really, um, if my students aren't engaged in it and if they don't think that I care about their well-being, I don't know how much learning is actually happening. And at the end of the day, um, I'd like to think that what they're learning is really important for, for their careers, for their life, but it is just one course and it might just be one or two classes. And I, I have to put that into perspective, I think. Um, so I think, I think we, um, we're coming out of a very long period of what I would call the neoliberal academy where <laughs> students, you know, only understood their education 
in terms of the GPA that they may or may not be jeopardizing, that they would see this in terms of, you know, how, how to, to how to proceed through the system as though they never got a day of illness, you know, that they that there weren't just some days where you just couldn't go on any further. I think that's changed a little in the COVID moment, but not enough. And so the ethic of care, like I feel I've had to say quite a bit this term, especially to students, that you, you, it's okay to not be able to give something in on time. I'm not going to, even if it's in my syllabus, I'm not going to punish you with, with, you know, deductions, just, just try and focus on on the learning, because I think we lost something along the way as we became far more metric oriented with disciplinary structures that we lost the care, the ability to reach out to our students when they looked like they weren't doing well. And I know there's something very odd about this COVID moment, but I do feel I have a much closer handle using the screen of Zoom with what individual students are going through than I had before when I was in the huge lecture theater where, you know, there's me and a whole lot of students. Some of them were coming, some of them were not. Some of them, you barely knew their names. Now I know names and I know faces. It's something very odd about Zoom in a small tutorial setting, which is how I've, you know, divided up my large class into small tutorials. But to be able to reach out and to say, you know, your camera was off the whole time. You didn't say anything. When I called you, you didn't say, are, are you okay? And I've got lots of emails back where students are really, they're just very gr grateful that someone's noticed. And right now, as I speak, I know this week, next week, very, very tough for students. We have to embed that ethic of making the time. And, and the ethic of care is not just about students. It's about ourselves you know, to recognize, I've had to tell one class just recently, I'm really exhausted. And to make myself vulnerable, because I think it's a way of leading by example to say, it's okay, I didn't get it done. And I'm exhausted. And, you know, I try and when I have some time to rest, I'll come back and be able to do it. And, and I'm happy to do that for others too. And so, I, so that's it. I think we just we forgot about care for the last 20 years. We just focused too much on metrics. And I think this moment makes us have to recover that. We're not gonna to get to every single question that's been posed in the chat, but I would nevertheless like to kind of continue along the same lines. Two questions have come in precisely on this question of values and metrics. And I'm going to put them together. They're 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 wonderfully written. So I'll I'll read both of them and then take what you need for for to continue this precisely along this line. Um, so Claudia asks, Claudia Hertenfelder um, asks, you mentioned what knowledge is valued to get a degree. To what extent is this broader than the university? Why are degrees the valued form of knowledge? What about, what about other practical forms of knowing? Why are plumbers or technicians not as valued? Should we be disrupting this constant flow and funneling of students into tertiary education? And what does value even mean? And I'd like to combine that. I know already there are four questions or so in there, but I'm getting at some of these, these issues. Rebecca Stroud writes, 
Tachika mentioned the value of working for the public good, which is a value that I also espouse. Those are Rebecca's words. I have perceived this value coming into tension with what I've called the accountability movement, which is focusing on test standing scores and other instruments that have been shown to be Western-centric and favoring of certain students. I wonder how, Tashika and Beverly, your thoughts are so that elevating the public good as a value that may be paramount to rankings, which seem to be driving high, higher ed. Lots, lots to, lots to work with there. Should I go first, Tashika? Yes. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Those were a lot of questions and they're, they're great questions. They really are. These are the challenges of the moment. So, you know, for Claudia, I would say I agree with you completely. You know, we have had, uh, you know, I mean, I am in higher education. It's the space I'm in most. So a lot of what I had to say spoke to that. But I am so very aware. And I, I think here of my grandparents, you know, these were rural folks who lived in places that, you know, my granddad lived in a place where there was no electricity, there was no running water. But you ask him anything about the outside world, anything. And he would sit there with his transistor radio, listening and learning and, and had knowledge of how things grew and had knowledge about how the world worked. And he had never been to high school. So, you know, I know that there are very, very different knowledge systems that are either devalued because we only understand um, value in work through the wage system and what you can earn, um, but also that we've had such a long history of saying, if you know how to grow yam in the Caribbean and to grow it well, that that has so less value to whether you have a university degree or not. So we need to decenter that. But that's a much taller order, I would say, than, than, you know, I feel capable of doing. I feel capable of nibbling at the edges, of raising those questions, of having value there, of pushing the institution I'm in to recognize that the very different ways that people come into knowledge should be appreciated. And, you know, that conversation I was having about just at the, you know, what constitutes a PhD, for example, you know, can it look very different from a dissertation or a couple of journal articles, you know? So, so I, I agree, we need to unsettle those things. And that, you know, in the province I'm in at the moment, which is Montreal, students actually start out at the, um, when they're about the age of 16, they go to SAGEP, which is something in, it's like the grade 13 in Ontario. But many students are not necessarily going to go towards the university to get a degree. They will learn a vocation and it is satisfying and it is recognized and it has value. So, you know, it depends on where you are in the world, how those things, you know, how that's valued. And I, I, I agree, we do need to shift some of that, but the the battle is one step at a time and from the place you're in. Tashika, should I leave you with a second question or <laughs> pass it over to if me? If you want to add anything, it's- I'll add what you, you say. say. I don't want to dominate. dominate. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think 
I mean, I just briefly to the first question, I think, I mean, I think that's an important point. Nereri was saying this in the 60s, right? Education for self-reliance with regards to Tanzania. Um, and we still have these conversations, um, you know, um, what what knowledge is valuable. Um, we couldn't, as we learned early in this pandemic, um, we talked about food supplies and who it was who was working in our farms and the fact that we needed temporary foreign workers because we in, in this land do not have the skills to grow our own food. Um, and that is really, really worrying, actually, right? Um, because this is an important life-saving skill. Like, like, so the fact that we don't have that within our own populations is is very is something we should be very concerned about. Um, and so I do, I you know, I do agree that we need to think about, you know, what types of knowledge that we value. Um, and all, and you know, I'm also thinking about the fact that I personally think that you know everyone should be allowed to take liberal arts classes. I the the capacity to be whether you're a plumber or a teacher or a scientist to be able to, you know, learn about, um, you know, different forms of art and different forms and learn about different forms of history and, and have um, conversations around politics and theory, um, feminism, you know, all of these, this, this should not be relegated just to someone who is doing a university degree, right, you know, in, in the social sciences or humanities. Um, this is necessary for all of us, I would say. Um, and this idea that it's only those who, you know, what what is it, 25% of the population that goes into university and even smaller percent that goes into the arts who are doing that? I, I'm not sure why. Like, why why is it? Maybe we, we need a bit of both, you know? <laughs> I mean, I would love to be handier. I'd love to be able to, you know, um, you know, fix my own drain if it, you know, if something happens to it. And I, I totally can, but I think it would be really handy if I could, um, in addition to having these types of conversations. Um, and I do agree. I think I think the the situation around metrics is actually is very connected to this, right? Um, and we've seen it in Ontario with this focus on um having all teachers have to take the math test now. Um which is deeply problematic. And the only reason that we have this is because this idea that math um, will mean that students can get better jobs and contribute to the economy better. Um, which economy and what types of jobs is, is, you know, we don't ask that. Why math? Why not um, other types of learning? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Can we teach students gardening instead? I, I think that would be great. Um, like we had all of these issues in the during the school year about um, classes, not, you know, having space in our classes, but no one really thought about doing outside schools, <laughs> even when the weather was, you know, good enough for us to have outside classrooms. Um, it, it feels like we, we have to be willing to not just reimagine, but actually actively organize for change. And I think, and I think we know that these, that, there, there's enough people that are questioning these metrics um, that are not buying into it, but I'm not sure what is this, the stalling block between that organizing for change that now needs to happen. Um, why is it that it takes extreme events for us to go out onto the streets? Um, it feels like we should be out on the streets more often personally. <laughs> 
And I just wanted to add one more thing to what you were saying, because when you were speaking, Tashika, you reminded me of something, which is one of the things I have been amazed at. And I am aware that, you know, it is largely for people who have access to the Internet. So there's a whole story about, you know, making access to to the online just a public good the same way we've got streetlights. But that's another conversation. But but the number of MOOCs, the number of just free, if you want to know, we'll give you what we have. Our institution should be doing a lot more of those too. I, I was part of a group this summer that um, developed an online MOOC for Caribbean feminist political economy. And it was it's a MOOC that's with with activists in the region. And it was the most amazing thing to learn from them, you know, to have a space where we could speak, which wasn't one way about academics speaking to activists and, you know, telling them about the world and political economy, but it was about the dialogical exchange. And the dialogue was so, so absolutely rich. We should have more things that aren't behind the paywall, that they are actually freely available because that is about the public good. And, you know, if if that was given the same value as teaching your course load, wouldn't that be amazing that you could put together something that is not just for our students, but is for a public? That would be brilliant. We have one more question, and it it's phrased in a way, it's very sort of straightforward question, and it's phrased in a way that I hope will take exactly what you say, you know, this idea of curriculas and what we teach and 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 how to build those institutionally and extra institutionally. The question is, so this will be the last one, everybody. Um, the question is from Tim- Timothy Hazar. I have a question. Thank you for an insightful and stimulating talk. How can the necessary task of decolonizing our curricula avoid or resist being domesticated by the institutions we work for? Oh, that is such a such an important question. And I think it's a question that we're all struggling with right now um, in terms of how do we continue to, um, to do this work and, you know, to echo Yves Takanyang, um, you know, where decolonization is not just a metaphor, right? Where we're actually talking about active decolonization and what that looks like, which means talking about taking up some of those hard questions about, um, you know, issues of land, for example, issues of colonialism and our own role in perpetuating it. Um, And what does that look like in terms of curriculum? Um, The... I, I think what I would say is that what doesn't allow us to, to do this work is a fear that we will, you know, lose our positions, not get tenure, um, be like, especially for, you know, as an early research, uh, early, early scholar, uh, pre-tenure, you know, these are some of the, these are some of the tensions. Um, do, when do you speak out? You know, it, it, it's a question that I, I often um, ask myself, how vocal can I be on Twitter, which is very public? Um, and I and I think, and I am slow. I have been very slow to come to the point where I've had to tell myself um, over and over again. And it's a constant. Um, it has. It's been a constant conversation with myself, where I have to tell myself that if I'm actually 
focused on equity work, then I, uh, while I have the privilege to do so, I do it to the utmost of my ability. Um, and that's all that I can do at this point in order to make sure that I am working in solidarity. And I am going to add a little there too. You know, when I think about the making of the so-called modern world, it was founded upon, you know, the colonization of so many groups of people and the idiom and grammar of race and racialization, and that that hasn't gone away, that it is still there. But somewhere in that process, we ended up with, you know, very um, isolated understandings of what colonization did to, to us, different groups of people. And so my sense is, in a moment like this, where, where everyone's talking about decolonization, they're really talking about it quite differently. And I think that here's an opportunity if we're not to be domesticated. And domesticated, I take to mean that it becomes part of an institutional practice that takes the politics out of it. Then I think what is necessary, and I think about this for Queens especially, is that all of us who were touched by marginalized by, made less than human by colonization, be able to speak to each other through those differences and to really try to unsettle sometimes what becomes um, instruments or infrastructures that make it very difficult to talk about the very different ways that we experience, you know, coloniality. And I know for, for, the place I study, which is the Caribbean, this is like a conversation not even had yet, you know, because it was assumed that, you know, this is an independent country, that these are not conversations that matter anymore, that race is a thing that no longer plays a dominant role in everyday life because this is a, you know, region of primarily people of African descent. That's not true. And it's not true at Queen's. So my sense is I understand that sentence or that question to mean we really need to work towards creating solidarities, listening to each other's stories of decolonization and learning how to work together on that. And I think that that, that sort of conversation goes outside of the tendency for it to become stultified within sort of institutional structures, it, it can live outside. And, and one of the things I do see at Queen's is, is really an, a need for conversations among scholars who are doing decolonial work, but maybe doing it in very different domains, that, that we need a more concerted and um, collaborative space that is not dictated to us by our institutions. On that note, I have the privilege of expressing my deep gratitude for your work and for your time today. And I should also say our number of attendees has been very stable throughout. Everybody I, I expect has been riveted on this important conversation, which I hope is just a moment as part of a larger conversation that our institutions will be intensifying as we move ahead. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, especially Tashika and Bev for your time today. And have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Tashika.
Thank you. Thank much. you, Bev. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening, and please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series.